0: Well, when, um, when you read the Athanasian Creed during a service, uh, or at least you make the decision to do that, which is common during uh, Trinity Sunday, I think it's safe to say that you've made a commitment uh, that um, you're going to be there for a little while, and after you finish reading it, I, I dare say that... <clears throat> The Trinity is not suddenly more clear. <laughs> yeah, can I get an amen? Uh, and that's fine, because when we talk about Trinity, God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, those uh, distinct persons, but all still one God, the substance of that divinity not divided, uh, what you're really describing is something that can't be described, at least not in any kind of simple way. And that's fine, because ultimately, even uh, like when we use simpler language, like when we say the word God, we are referring to that which cannot be described and cannot be contained. And this is, in a lot of ways, like the scary side of talking about God. Not scary in the sense that, ah, we're all going to die, but scary in the sense of God being wholly other, beyond our grasp, uh, beyond our comprehension as human beings. So rather than sit there and kind of rehash the Athanasian Creed, you're welcome, uh, I want to take a real quick look at the conversation that Jesus has, because there's a lot there. Um, Jesus is talking about His identity, and He eventually will go on to say, not in this moment, He will go on to say that I and the Father are one. Notice that He does not say, uh, we are the same, but He says we are one. There's a a unity there that Jesus has with the Father, which, by the way, is part of the reason why they killed him. Because you can't say things like that. But he says that before Abraham was, I am. Uh, he says that Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Now that may set off a bit of a flag for some of us. Especially if you know the story of Abraham well. Because that's not described in the book of Genesis at all. Well there is, however, a, it's a later Jewish tradition. So, it comes after the time of Jesus by a bit, but apparently, at least it's suggested that that is kind of going on here, that said that when God was making His promise to Abraham, He calls him out of His tent at night, and He says, look at the stars, actually like our image here, which was not planned, by the way, Uh, and God says to Abraham, your descendants will be like the stars in the sky. And, I mean, that part is in Genesis, but then there's this later Jewish tradition, rabbinic tradition, that says that at that time, Abraham was given this vision of everything, of all time. It's like he takes a step out of that dimension and can kind of see it. And more specifically, the tradition says that Abraham saw the era of the Messiah, the one who was to come. And so, it sounds like Jesus is, um, I guess, picking up on that tradition. Apparently, or at least the best explanation that I can find, is that that conversation was already happening. Then, of course, they say, uh, hey, Jesus, you're not yet 50 years old. He was probably in his 30s by that point. Uh, we're not that bad at math. Abraham was like 2,200 years ago. What are you talking about? And he says, before Abraham was, I am. And then they try to kill him, and for good reason. Uh, I am, the, the, you know, the verb to be in the first person, I am, is uh, I think likely a play on words of the divine name of Yahweh. Yahweh. Yahweh comes from the verb in Hebrew of, like, being. Jesus is maybe, like, showing his cards a little bit more, that he's not just a man. He is a man. But there's something very strange going on here. And it will take generations of Christians to put together in I I dare say coherent words, because if that's your first time reading the Athanasian Creed, you will say, hey, that's not coherent. Um, But it is. It's internally very logical, and it it works. Uh, But it will take a long time for them to get there, and a lot of controversy, and a lot of struggle to eventually say that God, as revealed in the Scriptures, is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, the Son is not the Father, the Father is not the Spirit. There's a distinction there, but they are all one God. That whatever that essence or substance or however you want to define it of divinity is not divided. Which means that that you can't really draw analogies for the, the Trinity either. I remember growing up, and you'd say, "Well, like <clears throat> Trinity is like um, like a person, like like me." I, I by the way, I'm not saying I am the Trinity. Just FYI. Uh, but like like me as Eric, I am a pastor. I am a father. I am a man. Well, turns out that's modalism. That's an ancient heresy. Because that divides the divine substance, or God is like an egg. The Trinity is like an egg. You might have heard: uh, there's the shell, there's the egg white, egg white, and there's the yolk. I think that's called Sabellianism. I can't really remember um, another heresy because it divides God. In other words, all metaphors just don't work. I kind of like it like that, because it puts me in my place. In fact, it's a reminder that there are some things, in fact, there's a lot of things about God that I'm not really meant to grasp. Or as a professor of mine from seminary used to like to say, God is God, and you are not. So we'll just leave it at that. But as I was kind of probing, meditating on this idea of Trinity, because I've got to, you know, turn it into a sermon somehow, um, th- there was something that caught my, caught my attention. You know, we, we say that, that God, the Father, sends the Son. And by the work of the Son to redeem, He sends the Holy Spirit. Now, the Son, Jesus, and he does this uh, several times in Scripture, then uh, acts as, if you will, like a divine cheerleader to his disciples and the, his, the, his followers in the ages to come, saying, But I am sending the Spirit. And the Spirit will point you to the Father, even though the Father glorifies the Son. And the Father sends the Spirit, but the Spirit takes takes that glory and throws it back to Jesus and back to God. There's, there's something within the Trinity that refuses to hoard the glory. Now, bookmark that. Uh, because uh, w- when we talk about Trinity, at least in this uh, context, we're also talking about worship. This is the God that we believe in. This is God as he is revealed to us. And we worship this God. And embedded in the human experience or in human existence is this law. Not like law, like don't you know, murder or steal, but the law, like the law of gravity, like it just is. Um, that's how it is. There's this law of human existence that says that what you worship is what you will become like. What you worship, what you desire, however you want to explain that, is how you will be formed and transformed. Now, one of the best, most eerily concise explanations of this <clears throat> comes from a writer. He died, I believe, in 2008 um, uh, under tragic circumstances by uh, his own hand. Um, he, he was a very, he was a genius writer. I'm, I'm not necessarily recommending him, um, so don't hear that. His name was David Foster Wallace. Um, brilliant writer, just impenetrable. Uh, if you ever pick up something that he reads, and again, as your pastor, I'm not necessarily recommending it, but you do go for it. You will go. What on earth is this guy saying? Um, but he was a genius. And a couple years before he died, he gave this commencement speech, and um, something was going on. I, I'm not even going to begin to pretend to know where he he suddenly became very clear. And so he gave this speech to um, a bunch of graduates, and. Bear in mind, he is not speaking or writing from a Christian perspective in any sense. But he says this, if you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It has been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, bromides, epigrams, parables, the skeleton of every great story. The trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. Worship power, and you will feel... weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to keep that fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart. You will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. Look, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful. I would say they are, but again, this is uh, Dave here. Uh, It is that they are unconscious, Their default settings, they're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. And the world will not discourage you from operating on your default settings because the world of men and money and power hums along quite nicely on the fuel of fear and contempt and frustration and craving and the worship of self. Our own present culture has harnessed these forces in ways that have yielded extraordinary wealth and comfort and personal freedom. The freedom to be lords of our own tiny skull-sized kingdoms, alone at the center of all creation. This kind of freedom has much to recommend it. But of course, there are all different kinds of freedom, and the kind that is most precious you will not hear much talked about in the great outside world of winning and achieving and displaying. The really important kind of freedom involves attention and awareness and discipline and effort and being able truly to care about other people and do sacrifice for them over and over in myriad, petty little ways every day. That is real freedom, the alternative. Is unconsciousness the default setting, the rat race, the constant gnawing sense of having had and lost some infinite thing? Remember that bookmark. You become what you worship. You worship money, you'll never have enough. Beauty, it will slowly kill you and f- as it fades away and so on. But at the core of this concept of Trinity is this constant giving of glory to something else. Within Trinity is a very powerful kind of selflessness. The constant looking away from the self to glorify something else. That is at the core of what we mean when we use the word God. This this almost pathological but in reality beautiful insistence that for something true and for something beautiful and truly saving you look somewhere else that rather than hoarding the power god is not a god of domination domineering as this powerful like despot but rather as a god that shares as a god that gives as a god that loves And outside of the context of Trinity, we as followers of Jesus believe that first and foremost, if you want to get a sense of the personality of God, you look at Jesus, who assumed human flesh, lived as a human being, gave himself in every sense of the word, including the ultimate sense so that all the little gods that we have worshipped and continue to worship die with Him. That God defeated death when He raised Him from the dead, as stated in the Athanasian Creed, that death could not hold Him. Therefore, giving us this gift of the Spirit... This gift of faith to be able to believe and love and acknowledge and follow this God the Father who again sent his Son to save and continually save us who then sends the Spirit. It's it's almost like Jesus can't wait. He was like, no, 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 don't cling to me. I'm going to ascend the Father. But oh man, somebody is coming. To which you might think, well, weren't we waiting for you to come? No, 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 somebody better will be with you always. So we as followers of Jesus who believe in this trinity, and I almost feel my eye twitching when I say that, <laughs> at least after this week, it's so hard to understand. But ultimately, it's an invitation into belief and f- following this ultimate being that we call God, who is at his very core, this selfless community within himself. And so we are invited to follow in that pattern. Amen. I invite you to rise for the prayers.